0: Welcome to the Market Maker Podcast, hosted by me, Anthony Chung, where every Friday I talk to a member of the team about what happened in markets this week. From macro themes and single stock news to cryptocurrencies and careers in finance, our aim is simple, to make finance interesting and easy to understand for everyone. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Market Maker Podcast, and in this episode, We've had Apple's developer event earlier this week. And while a lot of people are are pretty obsessed about augmented reality technology, we're not actually going to talk about the hardware side because not a great deal came to light. We're going to talk about Apple software. Sounds pretty boring, but it's actually could be quite a big deal in the revenue streams for the tech giant, Apple CarPlay, and also Apple Finance talking about the whole new buy now, pay later product that they're coming to market with. And then secondly, we're going to focus on Ray Dalio. Probably seen him peddling his latest book (laughs) more recently. Um, But again, he's out in force. Why? Because Bridgewater, the firm he's obviously closely linked with, is back in the spotlight, betting on a sell-off in corporate bonds this year, uh, underscoring their gloomy view on the trajectory of the global economy for what they see Going forward. Uh, but f- before we begin, um, if you're listening to this in audio form on the podcast and not via video, you won't be able to see. But Piers, I'm gonna, is that a virtual background? That looks like one of those Zoom preset virtual backgrounds going on there. Where are you?
1: There's no virtual backgrounds here. <laughs> uh that they are real palm trees. Uh, <laughs> In my background, thanks very much. Uh yeah, I, I'm just so happen to be um uh, Palm Beach, Florida.
0: Okay, what is this a pimp PIMCO or is this what's going on here? You are meeting uh who's there now? Bill Gross or who are you hanging with? <laughs>
1: I'm actually hanging with the Citadel crew. Um okay. we're, we're out here helping them run their summer intern program, actually. Um so this is yeah it's pretty i mean it's pretty cool it's pretty phenomenal what citadel put on for their interns i mean they they so their main offices in new york and chicago but they fly at the start of their 10-week intern program they week one is in florida on the beach uh, so they fly about 250 students down to florida you know book out the entire four seasons and um there is so there's training every day, right? Um, and then they, you know, it's like to kick off the um, intern program and it's a lot of networking events, getting to know all the other students. And then they have a lot of inspirational speakers. So, so check this out, you know. So Tuesday, um, headline
0: speaker, uh, Michael Phelps. Um, the, As you do. Yeah. The greatest Olympiad of them all. Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh,
1: so he rocked up just to have a chat, you know. Um, and actually, what I was talking to the—I I wasn't here for that, unfortunately. I only arrived uh, yesterday, but um, it was actually really interesting. I was talking to the the Citadel team running, you know, running the program, and um, just about that Michael Phelps thing. And because you know, he's the biggest. Well, it's just a legend, right? Olympian uh, record. What are that? what are the number of golds? What what are the stats? So twenty you...
0: twenty three golds. Yeah, three silvers, two bronze. I mean, that is obviously just extraordinary. Um, and he's still not the greatest Olympiad,
1: though.
0: Ooh, Do you know who he's is? the greatest Summer Olympiad? Though, no. Okay, well, well, I'm I'm sticking with Summer then. He's 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 not. You saying he's not? No, greatest. he's not. Oh no, definitely not why
1: oh, you what you mean well he is based on medal stats
0: but he's not he's not he's obviously no Steve Redgrave surely
1: <laughs> wow yeah I mean i would I would agree with that actually <laughs> but, you know, five five goals five games just one gold per game he's but, yeah I guess, come on yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: but
1: five versus 23. 28.
0: Uh, total medals 20, 28, 20, yeah
1: all right but anyway the, the point I was going to make was, he. so what was he talking about to these Citadel interns? He wasn't talking, it wasn't about how amazing he is and, and winning mindsets and, and stuff. It wasn't about that. It was actually about post Olympic retiring, and actually it was about mental health and it was about depression and how he had experienced quite a sharp, you know, fall into depression Following his retirement, I mean, I guess these these kind of uber successful people, that especially athletes, right? Where your career ends and you're still mm. young, relatively. I mean, you go from everything to then, right? What am I going to do now? And uh, and the kind of fall off the pedestal is almost impossible to deal with, I guess. And so he was talking about, you know, mental strength and you know overcoming adversity, and obviously a lot of these the roles that these in at Citadel are, are trying to get, obviously they're only on their 10 week summer program, right? These aren't full-time hires, but you know, Citadel is a, it's a they're a market maker and they're a hedge fund. It's very markets, you know, your frontline markets roles. Um, and so, you know, it's about dealing with mindset around dealing with um, loss, dealing with adversity, dealing with, you know, really challenging situations and and he so he was talking about how he'd overcome hmm. those kind of post success sort of um depression period and, and come through it so yeah he, he's now on a big mission to really help you know with mind with with mental health generally but particularly amongst you know
0: the younger age group so hmm. very interesting yeah shame you missed that it would have been great to get, yeah. get his take but um but yeah look oh. i'm sure you'll get some intel over the coming days uh in and around your activity in the fall seasons and palm trees, but that's, <laughs> uh, first things first, a quick shout out to um, our summer analysts. They've started, uh, the first cohort is in for Amplify Me, which is great. And um, yep. yeah, great to have them with us. They're on the buy side week. So they're doing an asset management sim right now. Uh, I've been with them working in the, the kind of futures market talking about more intraday cross asset class, event-driven new stuff today, so yeah. It's been great to get them stuck in um, some good and bad results so far in terms of people's uh, <laughs> risk adherence to risk protocols. Let's call it yeah. but, uh, all part of the learning journey. Um, well, actually,
1: on the, well, the quant sim that we're running for Citadel tomorrow mm. for their interns here in Miami. That um, yeah, these some analysts on our program they'll be doing that exact simulation
0: next week. Cool. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, can't wait to see the the matchup, of the results. Um, yeah how they cut it and so yeah, check out the show notes more information about um, some of that, that training that we do but um before I begin, do if you enjoy this episode or any previous ones rate and review the show It'd be much appreciated whether that's Spotify, Apple, wherever you consume this and uh, yeah share it with a friend get the word out really appreciate it but look, let's get straight to it. Let's talk about Apple so Apple announced a complete refresh of CarPlay to better connect with the car's instrument panel and a deep integration with the vehicle itself. I promise I am not an Apple representative. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm I'm an Apple salesman here. Uh, But CarPlay users will be able to swap what they see on their instrument panel with a very Apple-looking widget design. So it can be bespoke, you know, the way that a lot of these interfaces are heading is to have it. So you want it in terms of the modular setup, the color palette and all these different types of things. So there was the video, you should check it out. It's quite, um, doesn't quite float my boat because it looks a bit gimmicky um, in my opinion, but um, you should have a look. It was the the WWDC is the developer conference. You can just check out the video on YouTube. It's worth a look. Um, But Apple has been working obviously internally on an electric autonomous vehicle. But the company is, as we've discussed on the pod many times, setback after setback, executive departure after executive departure. They find it incredibly tough to retain talent when someone like Alphabet is quite compelling as a place to go as an engineer because their breadth of project work, um, how advanced they are. Then there's Tesla, who are the market leader in a lot of these fields and technology as it stands. Um, But manufacturers... Are said to be already looking to integrate the new generation that they're talking about of CarPlay. Just a couple names Ford, Audi, Jaguar, Land Rover, Nissan, Volvo, Polestar. These are just a couple that are already yeah. on board. Yeah, you might have uh, heard of them. Yeah. Stat for you Go Apple on. says 98% of all new cars already have CarPlay, and 79% of users consider the feature before they purchase a car stats origination from apple <laughs> well, hang on hang on what 98% 98% of all new cars right. already have carplay so
1: why would 79% of people have that as a, a a real priority when they're choosing a car if all cars have got it <laughs>
0: I guess the interaction of the um, friction between you and the life that you have built into you via your yeah. phone and it's seamless yeah. um, trans- transfer okay. to yeah. your automobile, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just thoughts on that first to start off with. Um, you know, what do you think? Well, I mean...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, so Apple have kind of, they've got a two-pronged attack when it comes to this whole electric vehicle strategy um the one one so the one prong has been so far well let's let's be straightforward a pretty pretty much a failure so this is their titan project which is to build their own car um and i mean here's some stats because you mentioned um google there and so google's um waymo sort of um, driverless vehicle this so not electric vehicle i meant driverless vehicle right so this is the race to produce driverless vehicles and um, you know apple well in 2019 they acquired um drive.ai which was a self-driving car startup um and that kind of bolted onto what they were already doing and they were hoping that was going to accelerate their their kind of or help them leapfrog ahead on this self-driving car race but you know it's been a bit of a disaster and and just in 2021 i think they only their kind of prototypes only managed to do i think well, um, nineteen thousand uh, autonomous miles. So compare that to like Waymo's that they did six hundred and thirty thousand autonomous miles. And so obviously, with these kind of new projects, the the miles under the belt is what you want, right? Because then you're getting data, and it's all about that kind of machine learning with more data. You feed that back in, and then the algorithm's cleverer, and the you know the whole automated driving. Um bot then becomes a better driver, and so on right um but look they for whatever reason, they just haven't really been able to kind of get that going, so their second prong is forget about building an actual car um it's this it's the software that goes into it and and this you know is almost the exact opposite. this is seemingly incredibly successful, and I think this step they've announced with this update is certainly looking pretty interesting for apple um what I mean what I'd say is. I know people are getting quite excited about this. We'll talk about Tesla in a minute, but you've got people saying, like, this is the, this is the end of Tesla, um, which I think is a little bit sensationalist. Um, but basically, this car, if you've, I don't know, people listening to this, I don't know if you're drivers, I don't know if you own vehicles, but um CarPlay, as it stands, was actually launched in 2014. So Apple's CarPlay was launched in 2014. Um, I've got it in my car do i use it no me i mean i don't know whether that <laughs> says more about me
0: than yeah with apple product, yeah it probably we've, does we've, but yeah, we've rolled over pierce we're on that but,
1: but what i would say is the apple the carplay at the moment I, I don't think it's particularly good and it really doesn't do much other than connect your iphone and you can whatever make calls and access your music and right bog standard stuff um so you know what's exciting, I guess, about this this kind of new upgrade is that you know it's going to give Apple more access to to much much more interesting and potentially way more valuable data about how someone's operating a car, you know, about how the car's performing. Um, and and I guess one of the key things here is that people are kind of starting to to look into the future about is right is this actual is this driving data that Apple can harvest to feed into their Titan project and help them accelerate this self-drive car initiative. That's the one key thing Tesla have above all others in this race. It's the amount of data that Tesla are able to kind of pull down from all of their vehicles. And as I was saying before, there's no substitute for miles under the belt to learn from and feed into your machine learning process. So... I guess people are getting quite excited about that. I mean, what I'd say is don't this new CarPlay, it's not available till, well, they're saying at the moment, late 2023. Um, so let's just say 2024, and fine. If, and then great, and, and maybe it will get rolled out. I think right now, CarPlay as it stands, you mentioned the big names, I mean, they're, they're across most car companies. And I think there's 600 different car models. Mm that have CarPlay, interestingly, the absolute noticeable absentee from the list is definitely Tesla. So Tesla have always been very anti-Apple. I mean, this kind of goes back. I mean, Musk has got a bit of beef um, with Tim Cook. Um, They've got a bit of a history. And this kind of goes back to stuff like um, Apple poaching uh, Tesla of staff basically <laughs> and um musk famously once said that uh, he called apple the tesla graveyard yeah basically said look if you don't make it here at tesla then you know you go and work at apple um and obviously tim cook did not like those types of comments particularly <laughs> well so look so there's zero apple in a tesla um and they're pretty much the only ones you go to all the other car big car giants and apple's part of it right and and i guess one of the quite unique things about Tesla is that they're basically, I don't know how many, like five or six different companies in one because Tesla built their own operating system from scratch, from the ground up. Now, that is a fantastically difficult thing to do. All these other cars, they've tried it and spectacularly failed. I don't know if you've ever been frustrated by the operating systems in in some of these vehicles. And it's so bad. It's so clunky. It's incredibly difficult to navigate around, especially when you're driving at the same time, right? It's actually just kind of downright dangerous. So I think there's a huge play here for Apple, who have obviously got the operating system down to an absolute T, one of the, you know, along with Android, the two big giant operating systems on the planet. And if and if Apple can continue to offer these big car companies. You know the off- operating system off the shelf, um, and of course, with the whatever 1.4 billion is it Apple active users or iPhone users, mm. um, you know clearly that's a that's a positive feature when people are buying cars, especially if there's a more advanced Apple operating system available to make your dri- driving experience, you know, to ha- enhance your driving experience. So, mm. no, I think this is incredibly interesting for apple this carplay thing's been around for ages i don't think it's really really done much for apple at this point but i think this looks exciting but we've got to wait until 2024 um, and then it's only in new vehicles right so it's going to take a decade maybe for this new carplay operating system to be you know in a large portion of vehicles on the road and then all that data that could be valuable to start coming through so you know i don't think tesla have got too much to worry about in the near term um
0: but yeah definitely oh, a positive. Pra- pragmatic as ever oh so boring this uh, <laughs> yeah. it's okay vw will see to tesla before the carplay kills them <laughs> oh, so yes. it's fine absolutely that's um, no, interesting i that just just to bolt on to what you said i think um there's a lot of unknown um data here in terms of from a legal perspective I get it auto manufacturers will I think it makes sense to outsource almost that tricky proposition of nailing down your own iOS and you want to think with user in mind that's that simplicity of being able to then such a large proportion of people Apple product to have that individual bespoke experience almost enhances your product offering as a car I get that but if I was the auto manufacturer when you start talking, you mentioned the word data harvesting of my <laughs> user, I'm going to be like, well, no, that's a line by line, data digit by digit, like agreement that we don't know at all yeah. how that stands. So it's all well and good saying, okay, yeah, it's about the mileage and the accumulation of data, but what data will they be allowed to have? And yeah. then you bring in the regulatory concern of what you're telling me that there's like, 1.4 billion people and i know it's a fraction amount that will be driving cars to take data from but what you're allowing up that you think the regulators will allow apple to just like gobble all that up with no you know at least confrontation with the with the politicians i don't know i just think it's there's a lot yeah. there to to leap over before you hit that holy grail outcome which is yeah a, a a new revenue stream of an addressable market of 450 million like people or, or in Western yeah. developed nations. I think, yeah, I get it. It's exciting. I like it. And I like the idea of um, the services side, perhaps maybe, okay, this is out of the box. Maybe this is a deflection tactic away from their non-deliverable um, target of AR, VR updates from a hardware perspective. Let's just throw out a little CarPlay 2014 little V2 spin, get people (laughs) excited about that, buys us another few months to just work away at this project. Actually, we're finding is much more tricky proposition, which is this whole meta uh, and augmented reality space. And
1: and you're calling me the the kind of dull pragmatist. (laughs) Um, But you're you're right. Um, I mean, well, it depends... (laughs) It depend Apples so in some ways quite diverse in that you've got your Apple Uber fans, mm. and it's, uh, the, Apple can do no wrong. And if you're on that side of the fence, then the way to explain why they haven't rolled out any of this um, AR stuff or is that they've got so much great innovative new products that actually there wasn't really room in this conference to, to actually now bring in all that stuff. There's so much other stuff that's amazing that's going on that they, you would argue that they kind of push that to the next one because they can. Um, obviously your, your spin on it's on the opposite side of the fence, which I probably I'm, I'm with you to be honest, but, um, but yeah, you're right. Going back to that data harvesting, of course it is a conflict of interest for the big automotive vehicles to, you know, hand Apple, um all this data so yeah i mean you're right it's it's not quite as you know this isn't the sort of highway uh into the sunset for apple to kind of just clean up um but one thing you know on the well again it comes back to whether they can get the actual data or not but you know stuff like it's not just about driverless vehicles and harvesting data to kind of put into that it's the other interesting one was like stuff like car insurance Mm. Um, and so if you can track how people are driving you know almost like in real time then that can feed into a, a much more kind of clever car insurance sort of system where you're paying maybe your monthly premium mm-hmm. actually is entirely based on how you're driving the car and the better driver you are the kind of the lower the premium gets and that's quite that's kind of where that's what the future of insurance looks like right and so that's quite that's quite an interesting play, especially given Apple's. And here's a kind of segue for you into our next um, topic. Um, yeah, you know, especially given Apple's, you know, obvious growing, um, obvious move more into that kind of finance, um, kind of world with with their um, Apple Pay. So, yeah, it's quite an interesting one. That insurance product suite
0: that could be there for the future, new future revenue streams. Yeah, maybe that could bail me out when my wife tells me I, I drive like a granddad. I can <laughs> say, look, I'm just taking care of our personal finances for the, for the better of our family's future. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, you mentioned yeah. Apple. They're making that that kind of move uh, in, into a little bit more in the finance space by offering loans directly to consumers for its new buy now, pay later product, taking on a role played in other lending services by partners that they they work closely with like goldman sachs for example so well what's what's going on here what what's the involvement between well first of all they're doing buy now pay later yeah um uh, which we talked about before
1: yeah so what it's um it's, it's spreading uh what, what's the amount is it's up to six hundred it's up to a thousand dollars. Am I right to say? I can't remember what the ceiling is, but anyway, you spread, you can now you'll, you'll be able to spread your payments over four installments over six weeks. Okay, so yeah, very much striding right into the middle of the buy now, pay later market, which is a monster, huge market um, at the moment. And you know, it's like you know the clowns of this world. Well. This is, yeah, this is really bad news <laughs> to be quite frank. Um, but look, I don't think this is this isn't a surprise. This kind of move because we were talking about this earlier in the year. But uh, Apple are quite—they made an acquisition back in March, and they acquired a company called Credit QDOS, um, which um, essentially is a, a kind of clever new bit of software. It? But yeah, which is around credit scoring. Okay, so one of the things about this buy now pay later space you want a seamless as possible user experience right and so if you're on your iphone you want to buy something and you want to go for this spread the payments option then obviously you you don't want to be messing about with oh you try and hit buy and then it goes okay um payment pending you know a credit rating right a credit check and then what that credit check takes what 24 hours and then you've got to come back to the Products and hang on, did I get, did I pass? Did I not? Have I bought this thing? Have I not bought it? You know, so you want a seamless, so you want a pretty much as rapid a kind of credit check scenario as possible. And I think what, what and, and that happens, right, with the Klanas of this world, it's super fast. But I guess the problem that people, consumers are facing is that the way that credit checks happen, they're quite, they're still, still quite backwards looking. So the data that they're using for your credit score. You know, is, is your kind of, you know, all, quite, quite kind of, I guess, looking at your bank statements and looking at your payment history for loans in the past. And, you know, it could be that it's, you know, the way they credit check you isn't particularly uh, kind of relevant to perhaps your financial situation in the moment you're clicking that button to try and buy it. It might be based more on your financial situation six months ago and what the frustration people are finding is they get refused credit even though right now today actually they're a healthy consumer and you know if it was based on today's evidence they'd get it but it's based on historic stuff so apple bought this company uh, credit kudos whose software is a much more clever much more real time much more up to date way of checking people's credit history one of which is actually you <laughs> checking their um their mobile phone uh, monthly contract for example are you you know and obviously Apple have got all the data so this is about right do you have a monthly contract with Apple have you always been you know top of payments add on to the fact that for Apple I mean Apple products are quite premium so actually if you're an Apple user then almost by definition you're probably a more affluent person um, and so obviously from a Buy now, pay later. If you're going to get into that credit game, where you're you're basically lending money. So Apple are now lent; they're a lender, and obviously mm-hmm. you're going to get people defaulting. And once you're into that game, you know that's a big issue. What's the kind of percentage default rate? But for Apple, I guess their con- their customers, you know, are probably in the more affluent category, given they can afford iPhones. Um, and so this is kind of all tying into. A move that had been telegraphed for months and months and months and months, and now it's here. And it's been a, such a slow motion rollout, I have to say, um, in terms of them finally entering this space. Um, so now, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they execute it.
0: Yeah, so with the, the hookup then and with Goldman's, so Goldman's is facilitating Apple Pay later by allowing. Basically, the tech company to access Mastercard's network, since the iPhone maker lacks a license to issue payment credentials directly. But Apple is handling the underwriting and lending using its new subsidiary. So that new subsidiary, wholly owned by Apple, is called Apple Financing. Yeah. Uh, essentially, so that's how the two kind of hook up and 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 work with one another in that way. So. Yeah, yeah, and just, I guess
1: from the bank. I guess just one point on the banks. Hmm. You know, I, I get. Because obviously, to operate as a bank and to be a lender, um, you have to have a kind of balance sheet uh, of assets that you of deposits. If you like, you know, historically the way a bank works in terms of lending money, you have deposits um, from your kind of current account users, and that's the kind of capital that kind of goes against that kind of lending process, right? Obviously, Apple aren't a bank, but so rather than deposits just so happens Apple have got $73 billion in cash just sat on their balance sheet just because they're such a crazy kind of cash generative business. And so they, they almost are a bank, but just a very different, a very different one. And I think, you know, this is, this is huge for Apple. As I said, this isn't new. So it's not like the Apple share price is suddenly spiking because, Oh my God, this is amazing. And they're going to, this has been so telegraphed and you could argue it's been negative for their share price because it's taken them so long to, to actually get here. So, um, but yeah, I mean, for Apple, this is, you know, in the years to come, this is going to become, you know, definitely a a very, the growth rate of this part of their business, which is now financing, Mm. um, the growth rate of this part of their business will be very interesting to watch. um, and,
0: And definitely will add a, you know, a big new powerful revenue stream. OK, so look, let's just move off Apple and let's talk a little bit more markets oriented with using the new Bridgewater call on markets, which is they've warned that inflation could be far stickier than economists and the market are currently predicting. You might sort of question that and go, well, oh, th- how do you think you're so right? Well, I was reading, I think it's their know, the full name of it, their Alpha Fund pure out pure alpha love that it's not just alpha pure alpha (laughs) fund at bridgewater um it manages 151 billion dollars in assets as of the start of the year probably higher why because year to date their fund is up 26.2 percent you might have seen a meme very popular one go around the market this week and it's a picture of this guy who looks like Ronald McDonald at McDonald's investing in the stock market in 21. And he, and he's just having a party. And then it's a second image of a guy in a suit looking at loads of technical screens and his, and his accounts crashing 2022. <laughs> yeah. The point being is, is that, you know, without you know carrying the joke through Ronald McDonald could make money in 21 when the market was going up. Now it's a little bit more of a tricky proposition, but yeah. you know, they've done, you know, 26.2% in in those conditions, which is pretty phenomenal. So yeah. what they're saying is, is they're quite bearish. And uh, that then is a reflection of the fact that they think that the Federal Reserve are going to have to hike rates harder, faster, higher, I guess, in summary, and that's going to cause complications. Um, so yeah, just wanted to kind of deconstruct how they kind of pull together a view um what are the sort of signals do you think that they would look at and that kind of constitutes around timing i guess to exercise this view and then about how do they structure this how do you um because this is something we've been working with the analysts with this week it's kind of like these aren't just outright positions they're more complex in their nature of how they try to then minimize risk but optimize the profit potential of that investment strategy so Yeah, Yeah. just going to get a bit of a walkthrough, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this, so Ray Dalio, who's Bridgewater Chief, um, is one of, you probably, I mean, obviously, hugely successful, hugely over the decades, one of the most successful investors of all time. Um, But certainly in recent years, you know, he's been very much about the big, you know, debt cycles, right? The boom and bust kind of massive debt cycles and the rise and fall of superpowers. You know, this is his his book on, on debt cycles that he's been kind of masterminding and, and peddling. I mean, most of his time spent selling books these days, it appears, but, you know, the point is that he's been, I guess, predicting what's happening. He's been predicting it for years. And I think, and to be fair to him, he wasn't like saying, It's not that in 2019 he was saying, right, in 2020 and in 2021, all the stuff I'm predicting is going to happen. He didn't say that. He said, look, these are ultra-long cycles. It's incredibly hard to pinpoint the precise timing. But, of course, then COVID happened, which was obviously completely out of left field. And this was the catalyst for him saying, well, actually, what tends to happen at the end of these massive cycles is there's a major shock event and then that triggers everything into motion when we transition and have this big downturn. And, and he, you know, was definitely saying COVID appears to be probably the big event that might well accelerate this. So, bearing in mind, he's been of that persuasion for quite a while in terms of looking for when is the correction going to start. And, and he thinks it's going to be more than a correction. So, the fact they've outperformed this year is definitely of no surprise. They probably underperformed last year, by the way. Um, because they were probably more bearish and markets obviously did incredibly well last year. So now their bearish view is coming through and it's looking incredibly positive when you're comparing their performance against everyone else's. What's interesting though is now we, here we are in the summer of 2022 and you're actually starting to get some notable investors, some banks actually starting to come out and say, well, maybe, maybe we're past the worst you know, and starting, you know, and and you can point towards stuff like the Fed, you know, rate hike expectations that were uber hawkish a few months back have calmed down a little bit, um, and you know, there's not going to be 75 basis point rate hikes or anything ridiculous like that, and so, um, and, and with that, you're getting some analysts go, well, actually, maybe we're maybe this is the bottom, and maybe the second half of the year could be a recovery for stock markets, and remember, stock markets are always. They're lead indicators. They're forward-looking. So it it might be that we still get a recession. It could be, well, I don't know, do we get a recession in the US at the end of the year? Possibly. But the stock market could bottom out or normally bottoms out before the recession because we're kind of forward-looking. So what's interesting to me is here we are middle of the year and they're now almost like doubling down on this bearish view. So that's the that's the key takeaway here whilst others are starting to say right the worst is behind us they're coming out and going nope, absolutely not and actually we think this is going to be this is going to get worse so they're, they're probably moving more maybe well I don't want to say the contrarian camp I think it's quite divided at the moment out there in the marketplace as to whether we've seen the worst or not um, but yeah well done to them for this year and positioning correctly I mean, for sure, obviously, the inflation conundrum is the hardest one to predict. We've got some incredibly important uh, U.S. data on this tomorrow. So we're recording this on Thursday. So Friday, um, 1.30 p.m. on uh, kind of U.K. time, we've got U.S. CPI report. So this is another inflation update for the month of May. And what we've seen is that I guess the question is, has inflation peaked? And it looks like it has because the April figure was lower than the month before. And, we, and this, so this will be the next, this is a key moment, I think. Do, do we now see two months of declining headline CPI in a row? That's what people are thinking and expecting. And if that's the case, then maybe Bridgewater are wrong. And actually maybe this camp who think the worst is behind us are right. But for Bridgewater, they want to see a super high inflation print tomorrow because their view is inflation, this inflation crisis is going to last longer the markets are currently pricing. Therefore, they think the Fed and other central banks will have to hike more to control that inflation. Then you feed into how they're positioning themselves for this view, and that is based around the corporate bond market. Because in the end, if they're right, and interest rates have to go up really quickly, much higher than markets are currently pricing, then if you're a borrower and if you're balance sheet or if you're and well and if you're a borrower and you hit a recession (laughs) and rates are suddenly jumping higher well that's a recipe for disaster right that's a recipe for companies literally going to the wall and going bankrupt and how many and we call these zombie companies right how many zombie companies are out there that have been able to survive in the last decade they're not really growing They've got a huge amount of debt, which is just keeping them alive, and it's fine whilst interest rates are zero, but when they're not zero, it's not fine, and they'll go under. So how quickly do these zombie companies get stripped out of the system, and Bridgewater think it's going to be a rapid and very painful um, scenario of sharply higher rates. And so they're in the corporate bond market space. And, and look, they haven't expressed exactly how they've set up this trade, but mm. there's certainly a lot of derivatives involved. So there's stuff like you know the good old credit default swaps, which uh, if you were around in the great financial crisis back in 2008, um, was the kind of the kind of market to be monitoring. But this is where you you, you can buy derivatives that go up in value you know, if the creditworthiness of a company deteriorates, and so that's kind of their angle, right? Higher rates, these companies that aren't in good shape, that have got a lot of debt, their credit ratings are going to get chopped, their creditworthiness is going to decline as they move towards bankruptcy, and the credit default swap pricing—that's insurance against default—the pricing of that go through the roof, and so you can use these kind of derivative instruments to profit. From that kind of downtrend in creditworthiness, so it may be that they've kind of got positioned in amongst that there's also yeah and so there's also clever things you can do around spreads, so that's looking at the spread between yields um, on so again, thinking about credit ratings right the whole debt market is based on this credit rating system um. So you've got the Standard and & Poor's and the Moody's and the Fitch's of this world. They're the big three kind of global credit rating agencies. And their job is to do a deep dive analysis into a company that issues corporate bonds to borrow money. And they give them a rating based on their financial health and therefore their credit worthiness. Right? Um, and so, you know, the, the, the worse your credit rating, well, the more expensive it is to borrow, of course, um, because there's a higher risk for the lender. So the yield on these corporate bonds that have a lower rating, the yields are higher. And we often look at the spread between, well, what's the difference between the yield of a corporate company that's got a credit rating of triple C compared to a company like Apple, let's say, who's like triple A, and what's the difference in the yield? And that's the spread. And if Bridgewater are right, what will happen is these spreads will widen as the yields on the high-risk stuff gets a lot higher. The apples of this world will be the safe haven, right? So the yields on those will stay where they are, anchored and low. And so you can kind of place these spread trades to profit from the spread widening. So there's lots of clever ways you can engineer a position around this. But ultimately, they just think that, you know, borrowers are going to get squeezed as rates go higher, there's going to be a lot of bankruptcies and they think the crisis
0: is is still ahead of us. Cool. Well, I won't end it there because that's a sour note. So <laughs> a quick, a great summary as ever. And we'll, we'll have a quick word on the ECB. Um, oh, mindful yeah. of, as you said, we're recording this on Thursday, the event is still kind of happening <laughs> while we're talking, but the initial take was that these be kept rates on hold very much as expected. So deposit rate negative 0.5, but they said they intend to raise the interest rate by 25 basis points at its July meeting. And they'll expect to raise again in September. The kicker at the beginning in a statement was quote, if in the medium term inflation outlook persists or deteriorates a large increment, it will be appropriate at the September meeting to potentially, they're talking about essentially going bigger. Yeah. Um, The euro actually rallied um, in the initial statement. However, uh, well, to finish that part off, it was accompanied by their latest projections. So every alternate meeting, uh, they release them kind of in a similar fashion to the the Fed. So every calendar quarter and the end of year inflation target, they bumped up. It's now tracking at 6.8%. Last time in March, when they issued these, it was at 5.1%. They've lifted 2023, 2024. Growth, they've downgraded to 2.8% from 3.7%. So they were your forecast. But actually now, when you look at it, the the Euros have reversed that move and some. Um, So the one thing I always find with Christine Lagarde is Traders just seem to have it so locked in their head that whatever she says, yeah, it's like she's she's tries to claw away at reinstilling like some degree of credibility. But I don't know if it's because people didn't see her as a credible actor in the first instance. Given she's had a little bit of a, a bumpy political history before taking this this seat yeah. at the helm of the ECB, it's almost like people have started with a in the investment community, I mean, with a yeah. negative psyche and how they view her communication, yeah, and therefore that always—it seems like a bit of a reoccurring theme whenever there's an ECB press conference.
1: I definitely um, think you're right, and it's like unfair on her. I, I would probably say, and but yeah, you're right. There's this kind of unspoken, just uncertainty and unease about mm-hmm. her and her ability to. Like, I guess the other thing is not just about her as an individual and her history. She was previously head of the IMF and um, politically very well connected. And um, So it's not necessarily just about her, but do do remember she's following in some pretty big (laughs) footsteps with with your man, Mario Draghi, um, who, I mean, I think is a bit of a legend. So I think to try and follow in his footsteps is an incredibly difficult job. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think there's still a little bit of a trust issue between markets and Lagarde. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, the euro is selling off now. I mean, it's, down, it's new lows for the day, but it's not a massive move. I mean, we're just testing the low from yesterday right now. I'm just looking at the chart. But um, so, so really, um, you know, the euro dollar, Thinking, looking over the last, well, obviously this year has dropped off massively, um, but we have bounced over the last month. So we, I think the low of the year so far was about 103.50, if I'm just going to round it, 103.50. Um, and we traded up, we've been trading around the 107 handle for the last couple of weeks. We're still in the tight little range, even though there's been a lot of volatility today. The size of the range today is not particularly large at this point. Um, so we're still in that consolidation range after that little bounce that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. So... I think this is just quite a noisy intraday market reaction to a kind of an event that's pretty much as expected. Um, I don't think there's too much of a surprise. I know they, I know they said we may go larger if inflation warrants. Well, of course they will. And um, you know we talked about that last week. I think they should go larger if inflation warrants because the Fed's going larger. So you know that's your door to trying to raise rates. At a higher clip, and I said, but you know, in some ways, being the pessimist again, you know, the higher you can raise rates now, the more you can cut when the recession comes, right? But so I don't think this, t- this is kind of a lot of intraday volatility around this event, but in the end, I don't think too much has changed um, in terms of the medium-term outlook for the European economy or the euro's value, um, along with that.
0: All right, well, look, well, we'll wrap it up there. And um, don't forget to, to check out the show notes. I'll also put the link to our daily newsletter because there's been lots of other things that have gone on this week, which obviously we don't have time to cover everything like Boris Johnson surviving uh, his no-confidence vote. Um, he's going to potentially rewrite legislation overriding the Brexit bill. There's Russian f- still forceful um, activity happening in Donbass in Ukraine. There's Elon Musk flip-flopping. Now he's employing more people after he said cutting 10%. He's now, Twitter are now giving him access to the data he's requested. Now he's gone a bit quiet. So yeah, there's a whole ton of stuff that's um, super interesting. So we cover that all in the daily newsletter, myself and the team. So, you know, obviously free to subscribe to, check it out. Um, I'll put it in the the show notes. And yeah, thank you, Piers. And uh, enjoy Palm Beach.
1: Yeah, I'm just gonna just gonna trot down for a swim in the ocean. <laughs> See you later.
0: Thanks, Ben. See you later.